Chapter 13 of Masters of Space. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis. Masters of Space by Edward Elmer Smith, a.k.a. E.E. E. Doc Smith and Edward Everett Evans. Translated by Robert Sicanelli. Stephen Blundell, and the online distributed proofreading teams. Chapter 13 For many weeks, the production of ardent warships and missiles had been spiraling upward. Half a mountain range of solid rock had been converted into fabricated super-steel and armament. Super-dreadnoughts were popping into existence at the rate of hundreds per minute. Missiles were rolling off the ends of assembly lines like half-pint tin cans out of can-making machines. The Strat warcraft, skeletons and missiles, would emerge into normal space anywhere within a million miles of Ardvor. The Arden missiles were powered for an acceleration of 100 gravities. That much the Ketty brains, molded solidly into Teflon-lined, massively braced steel spheres, could just withstand. To be certain of breaking the strut screamed, an impact velocity of about six miles per second was necessary. The time required to attain this velocity was about ten seconds, and the flight distance something over thirty miles. Since the strats could orient themselves in less than one second after emergence, even this extremely tight packing of missiles only sixty miles apart throughout the entire emergence volume of space, would still give the stretch the initiative by a time ratio of more than ten to one. Such tight packing was, of course, impossible. It called for many billions of defenders. Instead of the few millions it was possible for the omens to produce in the time they had. In fact, the average spacing was well over ten thousand miles, when the invading horde of strat missiles emerged and struck. How they struck. There was nothing of finesse about that attack, nothing of skill or of tactics, nothing but the sheer brute force of overwhelming superiority of numbers and of overmatching power. One instant all space was empty, the next instant it was full of invading missiles, a superb exhibition of coordination and timing and the caddy control, upon which the defenders had counted so heavily, proved useless. For each threat missile, within a fraction of a second of emergence, darted toward the nearest Omen missile with an acceleration that made the 100-gravity defenders seem to be standing still. One-to-one, -one, missiles crashed into missiles and detonated. There were no solid or liquid end products. Each of those frightful weapons carried so many megatons equivalent of atomic concentrate that all nearby space blossomed out into superatomic blasts hundreds of times more violent than the fireballs of lithium hydrate fusion bombs. For a moment even Hilton was stunned, but only for a moment. Keddy, he barked, get your big stuff out there. Use the boosters. He started for the door at a full run. That tears it. That really tears it. Scrap the clam. I'll board the Sirius and take the task force to Strat. 
Bring your stuff along, Skipper, as soon as you're ready. Ardan Super Dreadnoughts in their mass thousands poured out through Ardvor's one-way screen. Each went instantly to work. Now the Kedi control system, doing what it was designed to do, proved its full worth. For the weapons of the big battle wagons did not depend upon acceleration, but were driven at the speed of light. And Grand Fleet operations were planned and were carried out at the almost infinite velocity of thought itself. Or rather, they were not planned at all. They were simply carried out immediately and without confusion. For all the caddies were one. Each caddy element, without any lapse of time whatever for consultation with any other, knew exactly where every other element was, exactly what each was doing, and exactly what he himself should do to make maximum contribution to the common cause. Nor was any time lost in relaying orders to crewmen within the ship. There were no crewmen. Each Keddy element was the sole personnel of and was integral with his vessel. Nor were there any wires or relays to impede and slow down communication. Operational instructions, too, were transmitted and were acted upon with thought's transfinite speed. Thus, if decision and execution were not quite mathematically simultaneous, they were separated by a period of time so infinitesimally small as to be impossible of separation. Wherever a Strat missile was, or wherever a Strat skeleton ship appeared, an omen beam reached it, usually in much less than one second. Beam clung to screen, caressingly, hungrily, absorbing its total energy and forming the first stage booster. Then, three microseconds later, that booster went off into a ragingly, incandescent, glaringly, violent burst of fury so hellishly, so inconceivably hot that less than a thousandth of its total output of energy was below the very top of the visible spectrum. If the previous display of atomic violence had been so spectacular and of such magnitude as to defy understanding or description, what of this? When hundreds of thousands of caddies, each wielding world-wrecking powers as effortlessly and as deftly and as precisely as thought, attacked and destroyed millions of those tremendously powerful war fabrications of the Strats, the only simple answer is that all nearby space might very well have been torn out of the most radiant layers of S. Dorius itself. Hilton made the hundred yards from office door to curb in just over twelve seconds. Larry was waiting. The car literally burned a hole in the atmosphere as it screamed its way to Ardane Field. It landed with a thump. Heavy black streaks of synthetic rubber marked the pavement as it came to a screeching, shrieking stop at the flagship's main lock. And in the instant of closing that lock's outer portal, all 20,000-plus warships of the task force took off as one at ten gravities. Took off, and in less than one minute went into overdrive. All personal haste was now over. Hilton went up into what he still thought of as a control room, even though he knew that there were no controls or even any instruments anywhere aboard.
He knew what he would find there. Fast as he had acted, Temple had not had as far to go, and she had got there first. He could not have said, for the life of him, how he actually felt about this direct defiance of his direct orders. He walked into the room, sat down beside her, and took her hand. I told you to stay home, Temple, he said. I know you did, but I'm not only the assistant head of your psychology department, I'm your wife, remember, until death do us part, and if there's any way in the universe I can manage it, death isn't going to part us, at least this one isn't. If this is it, we'll go together. I know, sweetheart. He put his arm around her, held her close. As a psych, I wouldn't give a whoop. You'd be expendable. But as my wife, especially now that you're pregnant, you aren't. You're a lot more important to the future of our race than I am. She stiffened in the circle of his arm. What's that crack supposed to mean? Think I'd ever accept a synthetic zombie imitation of you for my husband and go on living with it just as though nothing had happened? Hilton started to say something, but Temple rushed heedlessly on. Drat the race! No matter how many children we ever have, you were first, and you'll stay first. And if you have to go, I'll go too. So there. Besides, you know darn well that they can't duplicate whatever it is that makes you Jarvis Hilton. Now wait a minute, Tempe. The conversion... Yes, the conversion, she interrupted triumphantly. The thing I'm talking about is immaterial, untouchable. They didn't, couldn't, do anything about it at all. Kitty, will you please tell this big goofus that even though you have got Jarvis Hilton's brain... You aren't Jarvis Hilton and never can be. The atmosphere of the room vibrated in the frequencies of a deep bass laugh. You are trying to hold a completely untenable position, friend Hilton. Any attempt to convince a mind of real power that falsity is truth is illogical. My advice is for you to surrender. That word hit Temple hard. Not surrender, sweetheart. I'm not fighting you. I never will. She seized both of his hands. Tears welled into her glorious eyes. It's just that I simply couldn't stand it to go on living without you. I know, darling. He got up and lifted her to her feet so that she could come properly into his arms. They stood there silent and motionless for minutes. Temple finally released herself and, after feeling for a handkerchief she did not have, wiped her eyes with a forefinger and then wiped the finger on her bare leg. She grinned and turned to the omens. Prince, will you and Dark Lady please conjure us up a steak and mushroom supper? They should be in the pantry, since this Sirius was designed for us. After supper, the two sat companionably on a Davenport. One thing about this business isn't quite clear, Temple said. Why all this tearing rush? They haven't got the booster or anything like it. 
or they'd have used it. Surely it'll take them a long time to go from the mere analysis of the forces and fields we use clear through to the production and installation of enough weapons to stop this whole fleet. It surely won't. They've had the absorption principle for ages. Remember that first ancient skeleton that drained all the power of our suits and boats in nothing flat? From there it isn't too big a jump. And as for producing stuff, uh-uh. If there's any limit to what they can do, I don't know what it is. If we don't slug them before they get it, it's curtains. I see. I'm afraid. We're almost there, darling. He glanced at the chronometer. About eleven minutes, and of course, I don't need to ask you to stay out of the way. Of course not. I won't interfere, no matter what happens. All I'm going to do is hold your hand and pull for you with all my might. That'll help, believe me. I'm mighty glad you're along, sweetheart, even though both of us know you shouldn't be. The task force emerged. Each ship darted towards its pre-assigned place in a mathematically exact envelope around the planet's strap. Hilton sat on a davenport, strained and still. His eyes were closed and every muscle tense. Left hand gripped the armrest so furiously that fingertips were inches deep in the leather-covered padding. The stretch knew that any such attack as this was futile. No movable structure or any combination of such structures could possibly wield enough power to break down screens powered by such engines as theirs. Hilton, however, knew that there was a chance. Not with the first-stage boosters, which were manipulable and detonable masses of ball lightning, but with those boosters' cumulations, the vangs, which were ball lightning raised to the sixth power and which only the frightful energies of the boosters could bring into being. But even with 20,000-plus vangs, or any larger number, success depended entirely upon a nicety of timing never before approached and supposedly impossible. Not only to thousandths of a microsecond, but to a small fraction of one such thousandth, roughly the time it takes light to travel three-sixteenths of an inch. It would take practically absolute simultaneity to overload to the point of burnout to those threat generators. They were the heaviest in the galaxy. That was why Hilton himself had to be there. He could not possibly have done the job from Ardbor. In fact, there was no real assurance that, even at the immeasurable velocity of thought and covering a mere million miles, he could do it even from his present position aboard one unit of the fleet. Theoretically, with his speed up, he could, but that theory had yet to be reduced to practice. Tense and strained, Hilton began his countdown. Temple sat beside him. Both hands pressed his right fist against her breast. Her eyes, too, were closed. She was as stiff and as still as was he. She was not interfering, but giving, supporting him, backing him, giving to him in full flood everything of that tremendous inner strength that had made Temple Bells 
what she so uniquely was. On the exact center of the needle-sharp zero beat, every caddy struck, ripped and activated as they all were by Hilton's keyed-up and stretched-out mind. They struck in what was very close indeed to absolute unison. Absorbing beams, each one having had precisely the same number of millimeters to travel, reached the screen at the same instant. They clung and sucked. Immeasurable floods of energy flashed from the strut generators into those vortices to form 20,000-plus first-stage boosters. But this time, the boosters did not detonate. Instead, as energies continued to flood in at a frightfully accelerating rate, they turned into something else. Things no Terran science has ever even imagined. Things at the formation of which all neighboring space actually warped. And in that warping, seized and writhed and shuddered. The very sub-ether screamed and shrieked in protest as it too yielded in starkly impossible fashions to that irresistible stress. How even those silicon fluorine brains stood it, not one of them ever knew. Microsecond by slow microsecond, the vangs grew and grew and grew. They were pulling not only the full power of the Ardern warships, but also the immeasurably greater power of the strainingly overloaded Stratian generators themselves. The ethereal and subethereal writhings and distortions and screamings grew worse and worse, harder and ever harder to bear. Imagine, if you can, a constantly and rapidly increasing mass of plutonium, a mass already thousands of times greater than critical, but not allowed to react. That gives a faint and very inadequate picture of what was happening then. Finally, at perhaps a hundred thousand times critical mass, and still in perfect sync, the vangs all went off. The planet Strat became a nova. We won! We won! Temple shrieked, her perception piercing through the hellish murk that was all nearby space. Not quite yet, sweet, but we're over the biggest hump, and the two held an impromptu but highly satisfactory celebration. Perhaps it would be better to say that the planet Strat became a junior-grade nova, since the actual nova stage was purely superficial and did not last very long. In a couple of hours, things had quieted down enough so that the heavily screened warship could approach the planet and finish up their part of the job. Much of stretched land surface was molten lava. Much of its water was gone. There were some pockets of resistance left, of course, but they did not last long. Equally, of course, the stretch themselves, 25 miles underground, had not been harmed at all. But that, too, was according to plan. Leaving the task force on guard to counter any move the Strats might be able to make, Hilton shot the Sirius out to the planet's moon. There, Sawtell and his staff and tens of thousands of omens and machines were starting to work. No part of this was Hilton's job, so all he and Temple did was look on. Correction, please. That is not all they did. But while resting and eating and loafing and sleeping and enjoying each other's company, 
both watched Operation Moon closely enough to be completely informed as to everything that went on. Immense, carefully placed pits went down to solid bedrock. To that rock were immovably anchored structures strong enough to move a world. Driving units were installed. Drives of such immensity of power as to test to the full the highest engineering skills of the galaxy. Mountains of fuel concentrate filled vast reservoirs of concrete. Each was connected to a drive by 50-inch high-speed conveyors. Sawtell drove a thought, and those brutal superdrives began to blast. As they blasted, Scratch satellite began to move out of its orbit. Very slowly at first, but faster and faster. They continued to blast with all their prodigious might and in carefully computed order until the desired orbit was attained, an orbit which terminated in a vertical line through the center of the Strett's supposedly impermeable retreat. The planet Strett had a mass of approximately 7 times 10 to the 21st metric ton. Its moon, little more than a hundredth as massive, still weighed in at about 8 times 10 to the 19th, that is, the figure eight followed by nineteen zeros. And moon fell on planet, in direct central impact, after having fallen from a height of over a quarter of a million miles under the full pull of gravity and the full thrust of those mighty atomic drives. The kinetic energy of such a collision can be computed. It can be expressed. It is, however, of such astronomical magnitude as to be completely meaningless to the human mind. Simply, the two worlds merged and splashed. Droplets, weighing up to millions of tons each, splattered out into space, only to return in seconds or hours or weeks or months, to add their atrocious contributions to the enormity of the destruction already wrote. No trace survived of any threat or of anything however small, for training to the stretch. End of chapter 13